Made Visible is a podcast that gives a voice to people with invisible illnesses. There's no blueprint about how to live with an invisible illness or how to be there for someone who has one. We're here to help people feel less alone as they strive to create a normal life and to create an awareness of how we can be supportive of people who seem fine but aren't. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Made Visible. I'm your host, Harper Spiro, and I'm so glad you tuned in. Today, we're sharing an episode from the archive with Genevieve Gorder. This episode first launched in February 2019. I remember the butterflies I felt sitting in the studio, waiting for her to arrive, trying so hard not to fangirl. Thankfully, she was super chill, fun. We took really silly pictures and had a great conversation together. Genevieve Gorder is an incredible interior designer with a bright and bubbly personality. She drew me in during her time on the original Trading Spaces as well as her other HGTV shows and her show Stay Here on Netflix about designing Airbnbs. She had shared on Instagram a bunch that she had Hashimoto's thyroiditis and Lyme disease, and I was intrigued to learn more. Heads up, in this episode, she mentions her love and connection to bathtubs, which got a lot of press attention. Give this episode a listen and tune in tomorrow, February 1st at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Instagram at Made Visible Stories, where I'll be chatting with Genevieve and getting updates on her life, health, and the status of her business. Welcome, Genevieve. Hi, Harper. We finally meet in person. We finally meet in person, not just over the interwebs. (laughs) (laughs) It's how life is now. I love it. And we live like blocks from each other and have never run into each other on the street. We almost sound like millennials, but we're not. True. So tell us a little bit about who you are and where you're from. Well, I am an interior designer. Um, I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, a family of five, and I moved out to Manhattan when I was about 18 years old, and I've been here ever since. I went to art school right up the street at SVA, and I've been in design since I was 18 working. So that was a variety of positions from MTV to advertising agencies and then into television by the time I was 22 and then never stopped. I grew up doing interior design with my family, not knowing it. It was much more of a renovation, preservation of incredible architecture that exists in the city of Minneapolis, which, you know, if you think about it, it all has to withstand about 120 degrees of temperature variation. So things are built. There And it's an old city. So you have some really beautiful relics that in the 80s, no one was really interested in. So we could afford them. And we learned as a family, basically, how to uh, strip off the 70s and welcome back the early 1900s and all of these incredible pieces of architecture. So it came naturally. I didn't know I was going to be an interior designer. I, I studied graphic design and interiors. Um, and that's why I went into advertising first. However, I couldn't get away from my roots and they came calling and I went into the wild world of television as, you know, one of the first transformation shows in our country. Which was one of the best and came back pretty recently. What was that experience like? Uh, It's not even a show. It's more of a movement that was started and it, you know, it wasn't intentional. It just, it became, it was a moment, it was lightning. And being the first at anything is something you can only do once. Coming back felt um, like family. And I didn't know how emotional it would be. It was really sweet. And there were only six of us that did this together. And we're the only ones we can relate to in this particular, you know, epic moment of life. And we're forever connected. I think now, being full-grown adults, there's um, a lot more patience, a lot more experience in television and in design. And we don't, it's like having a bunch of alphas at a party. You never need to worry about being taken care of. Like, we all know what we're doing from A to Z. And that's rare, you know, in television because a lot of people fake it. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say in watching the reunion show, it was so interesting to watch the dynamics between you guys because it was so clear. There was so much love. And as you said, family Mm -hmm. between you guys. This was no phony business. Respect. There's a lot of respect. And we all play very definitive roles within the family of who takes care of who, who makes everyone laugh, who you run to when you're crying. It's a it's a fully formed family, dysfunctional as everybody, but um, one that I love. That was, 
you know, it was hard to not do the second round of Trading Spaces because we just filmed a little bit more of that. And I recently um, took on a new series on another network. So we'll talk about that later. Love it. <laughs> so because we're we're here today to talk a little bit on the health front of things. Let's do it. You were diagnosed with Lyme disease nine years ago. How did you get to that diagnosis? What symptoms mm. were you having? Give us a little rundown on that front. You know, with autoimmune in general, as you know very well, there's not a lot of answers for anything. When did I contract this? Is it really Lyme? Is this doctor right? When did I really start having all the symptoms? There's a lot of question marks. However, it happened nine years ago. Uh, my daughter was one. And I remember I was shooting a show called Design Star in which I had to sit on a panel of judges. And I was one of them. And I had to be very serious and look relatively perfect <laughs> in all that lighting and makeup. I remember it well. Mm -hmm. And be serious and stern. And I was dying inside and I had no idea what was going on. Now, I come from a, a family of medical, medical and art, which I think are synonymous in a lot of ways. Um, so I feel like I'm, you know, out, uh, the big pie chart of life, I feel like I'm maybe in that top 10% of humans who are really in touch with what their body's saying. I'd like to think of that. Having dancers on one side of the family and doctors on the other, we're in it. <laughs> and I have the words for it, right? But at that time, I did not know what was going on and no one else did either. Lyme research at, at 10 years ago was, you know, in the basement of where it is comparatively today. This one side of my throat was burning consistently. One eye was watering nonstop. My tongue felt like it was burnt. I kept thinking maybe it was my cell phone that I always had on the right side of my head. Was I having like some kind of weird relationship with tech? I tried to figure, I mean, you go through every single question mark in life trying to find the answer to these strange symptoms. And they call Lyme, you know, the great masquerader. And it, you know, shows up in a variety of different ways that can present themselves as you know, a variety of different diseases. So is it Bell's palsy? Is it, you know, MS? Is it they go through the deck of scary words and you are petrified? Um, then my nerves started to spark. It felt like little needles all over, primarily in the right side of my body. And I'd be sitting on that panel trying to have it together. And a good thought, I started getting foggy. I started forgetting things, seeing halos around lights. I could no longer stand in grocery store lines because there was too much sound and too much light, almost like a migraine without the headache. And I would just leave my cart and walk out. And I, you start to go on the web and everything is you're going to die, which is, it, we all go there for everything, but health is a really, uh, should come with a big warning label of do not believe everything you're hearing. As you know, too, I'm sure there's a lot of people that love to live in sick and have a lot of time to write about how sick is really their truest identity, yeah. which I completely refuse on every level. Anyway, what I did figure out after going to five, six, seven different doctors who had me tested for everything and nothing showed up, I went to uh, my, my original GP that I had left a while ago, who was an integrative doctor, which I think everyone should be right now because we know too much not to be. And you need to find those doctors who are also detectives. And he's not scared of the I don't know, because if you are scared of the I don't know, it's an I don't know. And here's a pill. Go away. That's our system. And having someone who's just a little bit more curious who knows a little bit more about herbal medicine. Um, there's a lot more curiosity in general, and there's a lot of different roads you can take. So he's like, let's keep testing you. Let's keep testing you for Lyme. Let's test nine times. Because I had showed up negative, negative, negative. Now, for everyone who has Lyme, they know that Lyme operates like a little flower. Just imagine these little tiny flowers, little tiny baby's breaths, all floating around your body. And they're dry and closed up most of the time. And then every six weeks or four weeks, I can't remember, they bloom. And the only time that you can test positive for Lyme is when they're blooming. And so sure enough, that consistency of testing um, found the Lyme. And I was, I think there's four stages of Lyme. Fourth is the most serious. I was at third. I went on a, a huge 
arsenal of antibiotics for way too long, which I don't think they'd ever do to me today. Uh, six months. How of, long? How long from when you started having these symptoms while sitting on the panel till this diagnosis? I had about a year, which is really letting Lyme go. And um, I had no red bullseye. I could find no tick. You know, only 30% of people actually find the tick and the mark. But I have maybe 5,000 pounds of hair on my head. There could be 19 ticks in there right now, and I wouldn't know. <laughs> and I did happen to spend my summer that year in Shelter Island in the Hamptons of New York, where we are like Lyme Central. So it it was found, and I was relieved to have a diagnosis, as we all are. However, what was done to me first, I don't think, like I said, would be done again with that amount of antibiotics. It did provide relief, but it did damage as well. And as anyone with autoimmune knows, autoimmune diseases love to party with each other. So once you have your gateway autoimmune, other ones like, hey, Hashimoto's is here. I want to come party with you. So, you know, Hashi came in a good eight years later. And so how did that come to be? Uh, I was getting sinus infections way too often, and they weren't going away with antibiotics. Now, you wonder, okay, is Lyme a part of this? Is my worn down immune system a part of this? And once you have an autoimmune, you think everything stems from that autoimmune where you could just have a damn cold mm -hmm. and you're just like everyone else. Instead, you go down the dark hallways. <laughs> so relatable. So get that. Right? Oh my God. Like we need to lean back a little too. And that's what I mean about like not living through or in the disease. Yes, it's a part of me. You know, someone who gets sinus infections all the time, it's a part of them too. They just can't call it autoimmune. We deal with it and we deal with it in a variety of ways through diet, through exercise, through understanding and reading and research and doctors. I mean, it's copious amounts of information, but I refuse to let it be an addiction because it can easily get there. And I've had to stop myself a couple times because it's fascinating, too. If you have a curious mind, you're like, well, what are they doing in China? Yeah. What? <laughs> Who's died of this? Let's find out. So Hashi came in and my sinus infection wasn't going away. And my ENT happened to feel my thyroid. And she was like, huh, the right side feels a little enlarged. Now, for those of you who don't know what the thyroid is or where it is. It's in your throat. It looks like a beautiful butterfly, like a bow tie under your chin. And it's like the master gland of all your endocrines. And it helps your metabolism heighten or decrease depending on hypo or hyper. I wasn't getting any weight. I had lost some weight, much like I had heard uh, one of, who was your speaker who talked spoke about Hashimoto's again? On, on Phoebe Lapine. She was awesome. Phoebe, you are awesome. I <laughs> loved your episode. And it was so helpful. I'm getting your book. But yeah, I lost weight. So I was I was looking great. I felt so good. Forties are amazing. I'm my skinniest and toughest and most athletic of all time. <laughs> what is this? <laughs> and then boom, here's another autoimmune. And um, it's terribly emotional and really scary because there aren't enough definitive answers as to what do I do next? How do I handle this? How do I get better? There's a lot of information out there of like, here's what's going to happen next. And it's going to be horrible. But I'm not that pessimistic type of human being. I tend to live in the light and refuse to step into a cave. I do shut down a bit when I'm hurt like that, whether it's emotional or physical. And I cocoon in wanting to learn. I don't want to tell anybody that I have it yet until I fully understand what it is that I'm dealing with because you know there's going to be cannonballs of what you should do next by everybody and their mom. They don't know if they're right. They've heard about somebody who had it, who had it, whose brother had it, whose cousins had it. So I want to make sure I have enough base information before I say, hey, this happened to me. I have this. But once you're comfortable, and it took me about a year, and I severely changed my diet, which was already pretty uh, monitored from Lyme. My Lyme's been dormant, knock on wood, for the last eight years. I don't feel it, you know, ever. I know it's there. I protect my body from the disease that I carry by eating, you know, especially clean. So no gluten, lower on sugar. I drink alcohol. I love food. I don't, I don't eat much dairy. You know, I'm just careful. 
and I feel better. When I exercise, I feel the best. So I have to always be a little bit more you know, stringent on that than most people because of my my buddies that are partying inside of me. <laughs> and so you mentioned that you cocoon once you receive a diagnosis. Oh, yeah. And you get in this zone. What does that look like? What does that mean you're doing? I read and I read and I read and I start to kind of like music. When you find a song that you really like and it's speaking to you, I go down that wormhole and then, well, if they wrote this, who do they get their information from and what doctor's doing what where? Where are the autoimmune like juggernaut medical centers in my area? Who's doing what at the Mayo Clinic? Because obviously I'm from Mini. Who else do I know? Especially first thoughts were, who do I know in the public arena that is suffering from this? Because the first thing you think of with Hashimoto's is, I'm going to get gigantic. And <laughs> A, that's not an option. B, I work in a public arena. I would not be able to work. And C, I just, uh, I don't want to operate my life like that if I don't have to. So no. And not accept that. I'm not accepting that. Yeah. And I feel like this is also uh, primarily a female um, disease. And with that, we know often there isn't as much research done or we just gets blamed on our gender. Oh, that's just because you're a girl. Oh, menopause is just because you're female and you're crazy. You know, where <laughs> it's like, what are we eating? Epstein-Barr is a part of that. What, what, what is the real issue here? What's the wound I have to fix? So I went back to my original doctor that diagnosed my Lyme, talked to him. And some people are like, ah, eh, you just have to take a pill for the rest of your life. And I said, no, I'm not going to do that yet. Until my thyroid is not working and I have no gland, I'm not doing that. It's like I'm not going to get, you know, the shot in my back when I'm giving birth until there's a problem. And I didn't need it. I want to see if I can heal myself. I don't think my thyroid is fighting itself. I have a virus in there that's attacking my thyroid. I'm not blaming my body. And so I went in deep on medical medium, deep. I like Anthony Williams a lot. He's not my only healer, but I liked how he spoke about food and really the war we're having with our food in our country and just this incredible explosion of autoimmune diseases with our populace. And to not think there's a tie there is ludicrous. And the chemicals, especially from my generation of Americans, they were at their prime. It was corn syrup, high fructose, everything. It was when all of our moms and grandmothers stopped cooking from scratch and didn't want to be a slave to that kitchen. Wonder bread. Mm -hmm. A lot of wonder bread. I grew up healthy. You know, I was the healthy house. I'd all go get my junk food from other, other houses. We had the hippie house. But, you know, in that box of total or grape nuts, nobody knew what was hiding in there. I also grew up in the bread basket of America where all the Roundup has been used for the last many decades primarily. And so the wheat sensitivities, particularly from my area of the country, are so much different than what we experience here on the coast. Rashiness, uh, gluten-free is rampant there because of hands-on direct contact with the fertilizers. So do I think that's part of it? Yes. Do I think Epstein-Barr is also passed down, you know, from generation to generation through organs? Yes. So who knows? Who knows where this came from? But I know that I won't entertain it with gluten, copious amounts of sugar, or dairy. So I pulled back. It's a bigger fight to remain as athletic as I want to be. But with Lyme, I knew what to do more quickly than if I had not had that warm-up round of nine years with Lyme. Do you feel like you did something differently when you received the Hashimoto's diagnosis? Yes. Or was it just an extension of already taking good care of your health? And prioritizing it. I knew that I didn't trust anybody. That's what I knew. That I'm going to get one opinion from one doctor. And I'm going to go somewhere else and get a different opinion. And I'm going to keep going until I find 10 different answers. And I find where they all overlap. It's like looking at the world's religions and seeing that they're all basically the same. It's about compassion and love. <laughs> right? And with health, I'm going to talk to the autoimmune, you know, director of the autoimmune institute here. I'm going to talk to the Lyme specialist in the Hamptons. I'm talking to a super Western old school endocrinologist. And then I'm going to speak to all the same people on the West Coast because they have a totally different look 
at how to handle this than the East Coast does. And then who's doing what? Like I looked at Yolanda Hadid and she wrote her big book about Lyme. Her kids have Hashimoto's. Where was she going to get all of her information? You know, the people with all the money, where did they go? And then instead of going to Switzerland, reading the book about that particular center (laughs) and seeing how they were handling the same diseases and then taking what I needed. Get my levels checked regularly. That's a no-brainer. And if I'm sustaining my same levels, then I'm doing something right for me. It's a personal chemistry. It may only work for me. And that's why we never give advice of (laughs) do it exactly how I'm doing it because this is what works. We all have such completely different ingredients in our bodies of viruses, of bacteria, of where we've been in the world and what we're carrying, and how viruses react with that is very personal. Yeah, everyone's body is completely different, and Mm -hmm. everyone's approach is really different. I've had so many different people on the show, and everyone comes from different ways of doing things. I had someone who is completely anti-alternative medicine, and that's what's best for them. Yes, And I can't sit here and say, I can't believe you're going to continue taking these drugs. I would never do that, because that's not helpful. They have to choose the path that's right for them, as you did, as I do. Yeah. Um, Social media helps a lot. That was one of my first resources. In what way? Who has this and what are they doing? Where are they going for help? I want to know their doctors. And so it was looking into, I think, like Zoe Saldana and Gigi Hadid. And they're the only ones who I knew right away were really out about it. There are not a lot of articles about what people do to get better. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of articles about how bad it gets, but not how to get out of it. Or not that, hey, you may just have it like this for the rest of your life. And that's your Hashimoto's. Doesn't mean that your thyroid is going to be destroyed inside of a year and you have to go on all the medications. It doesn't. Everyone has their own journey. Yeah. And that's one of the many reasons why I started this podcast was I was finding so much content out there that was really depressing and didn't feel like my people. Yeah. And I'd land on these websites and read these articles and go, oh, my God, this person's so sick and they're not living in, quote, unquote, normal Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. And they're completely defined by this. Mm -hmm. And that's not how I live my life. And so many people I know are not defined by it. I had to dig to find that you, you know, have these two illnesses. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that that actually brings up a good point. Mm which is I heard you talk on the Good Company podcast with Grace Bonney, who we're both huge fans of. And you mentioned that you had these two conditions. Mm -hmm. And there's not really any public information about your health. I mean, I did lots of digging to try to prepare for this interview. Is that intentional? Is it that you have so many other things going on that Mm -hmm. sharing about your health is not a priority? It takes a long time, and I think that's a great question. I think it takes a long time to make a relationship with what is going on with your health to be able to be strong enough to talk about it. So like I said, for the first year, I was pretty secretive just in wanting to learn as much as I can. It was my study time. It was Lyme or Hashimoto's or both? Hashi. Lyme, you know, was 10 years ago, and it was such a different journey in that it was painful. I couldn't get any information but be on these Lyme chat boards, which were like death. And I thought, is my life really going to be like this for the rest of my life? Because I thought I was going to die. Um, coming out of that, I felt like I, I really was a bit of a, a professional at autoimmune at that point because I had been really beat up. I did take that year to study and to not, you know, lose myself as Hashimoto's was not my identifying trait. It's part of me just like I have brown hair, but I don't lead with it. Once I started to feel comfortable enough about having it in my regimen of what I was doing to stay positive and healthy and feel good, then I wanted to make community. And if you don't make community with these silent diseases, I think it does become your identifying trait. You live through the victim of these autoimmunes, which is a really dangerous place to be and a really difficult life to lead. And you don't have to. We all have varying degrees of these diseases that make us feel in, you know, varying degrees of shitty. But it's okay. I think what I learned by having two autoimmunes that I didn't learn through Lyme, but having two was it's okay to rest. And I am full fire. I love to go really fast. I burn through 
everything. And I have fun going fast and doing as many things as I can and accomplishing things. However, to endure that kind of speed, and this may come with, you know, being in my 40s now too, you have to balance it with rest. And as a mother, I knew that if I didn't rest, I would break. And I often explained my diagnosis with Lyme first as it was sent to me and it was given to me to make me take care of myself because I take care of everyone else naturally. And I love to. It's part of my role in this lifetime, being a caretaker. It's my job (laughs) as well. However, I learned with Lyme that I wasn't taking care of myself to the best of my abilities. And I'm really good at taking care of people. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Mm -hmm. Support for this podcast and the following message is brought to you by Find Yourself Boxes. Find Yourself Boxes puts self-care back into your hands by offering customizable boxes, allowing you to choose self-care that works for you. They have an intentionally curated product line of research-backed wellness products that support you in creating self-care moments in a sustainable and accessible way. This brand was founded and is run by Mallory Gotthelf, who was on episode 10 of the show and spoke about the value of self-care in managing her own mental health. Find Yourself Boxes puts mental health care in the forefront as a portion of your purchase goes to mental health-focused organizations. Order your own Find Yourself Box or buy one for a friend using code FINDYOURSELFCARE for 10% off your order at findyourselfboxes.com. That's code FINDYOURSELFCARE, one word, at findyourselfboxes.com. Now, back to the show. So... What symptoms do you deal with at this point between Lyme and or Hashimoto's? You know, having Lyme for so long, I feel like I've definitely distanced myself from blaming any particular ailment first on Lyme because for several years I would go there. It's my Lyme bucket. It's my Lyme bucket. The sniffle is because of Lyme, my immune system, my immune system. After having sinus surgery, right after I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's and I was getting all those sinus infections. I didn't get them anymore. And I was like, my immune system is not as bad as I think it is. I think we learn here are the ailments of this particular autoimmune and we start kind of blaming parts of our body for being bad. My immune system isn't as good. My metabolism is too slow. Blah, 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 blah. And once it's just like confidence of a person, if you start telling a person that they're bad at something over and over and over, They feel like they can never do it. So if I consistently say I have a shitty immune system, I'm never going to get better. And so I stopped. I stopped all of that. And I have to say, I noticed right away that a lot of these ailments are also because Ah, you caught this bacteria bug while you were in Africa, just like anyone else would. Oh, you have a sinus infection because of a deviated septum that you didn't know about. Just like anyone. It's not always because of autoimmune. I wonder if it's that it's not not always about autoimmune, but is it things are maybe a little more extreme or maybe worse? And I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate Mm -hmm. because you have this underlying issue. Yeah, we have more worry. Like if I get sick, I worry if I don't take care of it in the right way right away, that it will get really bad. Where someone could get a cough, I'll get pneumonia. And I've actually had that trajectory since I was a kid with asthma. So you know your Achilles heels. So you're just a little bit more of a vigilante about taking care of yourself quickly and not letting it go. And that's what happened with Lyme. I let it go too long. Well, we didn't know what it was, but I let it go too long. But I would make sure everyone else was okay, you know. (laughs) Meanwhile, I was dying. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So actually to that point... You mentioned being a judge on Design Star. How does having these conditions affect or not affect your life? And were there ever times that you felt like maybe you were going to lose a job because your health was mm-hmm. taking over? I Yeah, all, all great questions. I think keeping health stuff private for longer than we would anything else that was hurting us is a protective shield against, oh, if people knew that I had this going on inside me, would they hire me? Would I lose work because people don't know if I'm going to show up? The thing is that I know I'm a tank and I had full on stage three line and I was working 18 hours a day delivering. 
So if anything, eighteen hour days, <laughs> you're a maniac. Eighteen hour days in makeup with cameras. Do not look weird. Like, do not show me that your eye wants to close. I'm one when your ears ringing and your nerves are flaring like needles all over your body. Be cool. So if anything, it made me trust my composition more. And I think this is something very female, that pain threshold and our ability to keep going. We wouldn't be a civilization if we couldn't handle it, right? <laughs> so I think all in all, I, the bigger idea was, look, if I don't if I don't take care of myself, the ship goes down and my child goes down with me. And it's, it's no kind of life that I want to lead where I'm living consistently through Hashi or Lyme. I have many other things that I do and that I am. That's just a piece of me. You asked me something about Hashi. What were the symptoms? I think you... Well, do they affect your day-to-day life or prevent you from doing anything? When I'm really unbalanced, I feel the lethargy is real. As with all autoimmune, you want to just take a nap. And that's naturally not something that I am inclined to do. I'd rather go do something. Um, that's why I can't do LA very well. I sit in that car and I'm like, I can't do this. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> it's killing me. <laughs> but rest is doing something. And um, whether you have an autoimmune or not, I think it's something as Americans that we have to say, hey, this makes us better at whatever we're doing if we shut it down for a little bit. And that might mean saying no to five different social obligations, which I've never had trouble with. It might be saying, I'm just going to lay here today. And it's okay. And giving ourselves permission to um, to not, just to not. <laughs> or to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's okay. And, you know, I always feel infinitely better after just that. And it's not a pill. It's, it's free. And you can do it anywhere, anytime. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Hmm. So you mentioned social media and sort of reaching out Mm -hmm. and exploring different people that had already come out about their conditions Mm -hmm. and community. What role does that play in your life and your health at this point? After I stopped being scared of it and I fully owned it, I wanted to let people know that I had it because I felt like um, it's exactly what I wanted to know first when I was diagnosed and also to be a positive example of how to live with it. That I'm traveling the world, working like a maniac, momming, getting married recently. I'm continuing on. I'm not just sitting on the chat board talking about it. It's also a constant education because with technology and, you know, a more global as- you know, relationship with medicine, it's it's constantly evolving. Um, so what works this year might be totally different in two. And I want to know. I have to keep on top of it. It's another job. Just like design, I need to know what's coming five years from now. So that machine and the way I gather information is really well-oiled because it's truly my job in aesthetics. So I really apply it to health. What I have to be careful of, not talking about it too much with food specifically, because it's like people with food disorders. It's not your lead. Just do it. Don't preach about it. Don't talk about being gluten-free nonstop and make every waiter know you know how to eat around it. Just be yourself. You just don't eat bread. Just, you know, get over it. It's not that. <laughs> get over it. Get over it. But, but what's that like when you're traveling, especially internationally mm-hmm. in different places? How are you identifying the restaurants you can go to or the places? Are you cooking in places? What is that like with all the insane amount of travel that you do? Here's the deal. I'm not a celiac. I'm not going to die if I get a little bit of flour in there. I know texture-wise right away on my tongue if there's flour in it. And it'll be an uncomfortable night, but it's not going to end the trip. I stay mostly with, you know, snacks on nuts, on vegetables and raw foods um, as much as possible. Wash them yourselves if you're in certain countries with (laughs) water in a bottle. That was survival granola bars, that kind of stuff, Um, kind bars, if you're in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and I was in the middle of, you know, Tanzania at refugee camps, um, what do you eat? And peanuts. I just lived on peanuts. <laughs> what a funny one to mention. Well, the peanut is from somewhere, and it is from Africa, and it is a delicacy there. It is nothing like ours. It's tiny. It's flavorful, just like everything else. And I became mostly vegetarian there for many reasons. 
And I, it's like a constant test of my body. I've done elimination diets. I've done paleo. I've done Whole30. I do all of them just to see we're a constant Petri dish too. And as we age, our body is changing on top of it. So how I react to blueberries now compared to when I was 10 are two different people. So it's a fascinating study. Maybe once a year, I'll do some kind of cleanse where I'm just checking my own weights and balances. How do I react if I eat dairy at night? You know, it's been great. It's definitely weaned me off a lot of different foods. However, I'm a cook. I'm a designer. I love food. And I think it's one of the joys of life. So I'm not, um, like I said, I'm not a vigilante. And you're not depriving yourself. No. I mean, I think that's what I always say is, you know, you got to have some sort of balance to enjoy food. Moderation. And not feel moderation and deprivation mm -hmm. is just like not an option in my book. Yes. If Parmesan cheese comes onto the table, I'm going to have a bite, you know. But wheat, wheat is gone. Wheat is gone. And how does it feel not having it in your life? Do you miss it? No. Don't even know anymore. You know, if this had happened to me 30 years ago without all of these options, there's a reason that gluten-free is a movement. It's because we're all sick. So now I can pretty much go anywhere and figure something out. And cauliflower has been a godsend. <laughs> and, you know, in New York City, it's just a phone call and it's at your doorstep. So, again, I had to educate myself on restaurants that were really great for me. However, I'm at a business meeting and we're eating someplace I don't know. I know how to navigate to. It's not even a priority for me anymore. I know just inherently what I can do. Without having to draw attention to yourself that yeah. I'm the annoying gluten-free person. It's Yeah. Again, it's not how I want to identify. It's something I have to do. But, you know, you don't know everyone's digestive history who's sitting at the table, nor is it my business. So, But you made a really good point that it's you don't have celiac. I so do not. So it's not a deathly thing if you were to eat it, unlike many other people. It's I, funny. Yeah, well, how I look at it, and I'm, I think all of us have different foods with our autoimmune that react differently, but how I look at it is if I eat too much dairy, if I eat gluten, I'm feeding the virus. I don't want to feed the virus. I want to starve the virus. It's that simple. I'm never going to kill it. I can't but I don't want to make it mightier than me. I love that. It's funny. I think about the first article I ever wrote about my health about five, six years ago. I just sort of, it was like my coming out story. Mm. And one of the first people that reached out to me was my middle school best friend who said, oh, so that's why you brought those gluten-free crackers to Fire Island when we were there, when we were in sixth grade. They remember. Because I was eating weird food then. Mm -hmm. And gluten-free was so odd back in that day. I don't even think those were the right terms. You know, I think I, I think it was actually called yeast-free. Yes. And she was so like, huh, this all makes sense now. <laughs> you weren't just some weirdo who ate rice crackers mm -hmm. because that was not a thing to be doing then. Um, you mentioned your husband, who's here today, yes. and you recently got married. At what point did you share with him your health stuff, and how did you approach that? You know, I had just been diagnosed with Hashimoto's when we were dating, so I wasn't super secure with it yet. I don't think I led with it in any way in the first many months, nor did I tell him I had dog allergies, which <laughs> he had a dog, which... <laughs> You want to fall in love first and then tell them about <laughs> the hard parts. Um, so I, I, I want to say it was, you know, well into it. We're big communicators. So we talk about just about anything all the time, which is a huge gift. I brought it up as something that I had been diagnosed with and I was going to do a special cleanse that summer. Do you want to do it with me? And then he revealed that he had thyroid issues, too, and he has since college. Sure, let's do it. And I don't I've never really had a partner in health before. So it's been really inspiring to have someone else who's watching or or will do it with you occasionally. And they don't have to do exactly what you're, you're doing. And he does not because his chemistry is different from mine. But I am the cook. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you call those shots. I call those shots. But, you know, it's it's not entirely that limiting. I think we live a pretty free life and we just know, you know, what, what's going to hurt us. So we'll eat less of it or eat none of it or say today we might feel bad tonight if we do this, but let's do it anyway. And once in a while, it's okay. 
<laughs> and your daughter, does she follow the same sort of diets that you guys do? Not at all. I think my daughter, he's laughing in the other room. I can hear him. <laughs> my daughter would live on pizza and cheeseburgers if She's a she New could. Yorker. Yes, she is. Um, however, I, you know, I do worry about her seeing me refrain so much from different foods. And I don't want it to cause psychologically any, you know, damaging effects on the way she eats as a teenager and a young woman, because we know we're so vulnerable in this category of life. So I really explained to her why I can't. And sometimes I see her pretending like she can't eat the same things. And I wa we watch it real closely because we don't want it to turn into an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, she doesn't have the same chemistry right now. She might have Hashimoto's. Who knows? But for now, I'm going to let her enjoy every baguette, every cheeseburger, and every piece of pizza and not gain an ounce and not have a condition. You go for it. Yeah, love that. <laughs> so you've talked a lot about food, and I wonder where, mm -hmm. how else self-care comes into play. I made note for myself. I remember a few years ago when you had your show, Genevieve's Renovation, mm -hmm. and you were doing a renovation of your apartment here in New York. And I remember you installing the bathtub in your office or studio, yeah. whatever you refer to it as, I assume that's a huge part of self-care. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about what that means to you. You know, I was so adamant about having a bath near the terrace. And having a terrace in New York is is a really big deal. And so I wanted that relationship with nature and water. And, you know, coming from a place where you're basically on a lake every moment of your life in the middle of a city even – I feel like I grew up on little islands. My relationship with water suffered a lot coming here. So that was a big deal. Like my house, I'm going to do this and it doesn't make sense for anybody else, but I'm putting a bathtub in my damn office. And I, it also gave people permission, I think, to think a little differently about home in this country so often we think too much about home value for resale and we may be living there for 30 years or we think about what everyone else is going to think instead of this one environment that we control, how it makes us feel while we're there. It's the center of our culture and it's the center of our lives. And when it's not right or if it's all beige, you're feeling that way. So, yes, I don't I have no barriers in the home taking care of me. It's my first it's my first nest. It's my first barrier that I have to break everything to make sure the house is taking care of me first. I'm not working for it. And when that works, I feel like the rest of life is much, much easier. 50% is easier. If I come home and stub my toe on the same table every day because it's in the wrong place, my life is bad at that moment every single day. And I'm setting myself up to fail. When I was sick, when I was diagnosed with both of these diseases, I've been in the same house that you saw on television. I truly built it to be like a mom. You know exactly that you're in a cradle and everyone wants to stay. There's layers of soft and soothe. It's very feminine in that way. Um, but it feels to me the safest place in the world. And when you do that, you know that you're, you've been successful with your home. When you feel like that and you laugh when you get home because you're so excited to be there, so you did it. And I did that for me and my family. It's a constant evolution. Now there's a, there's a man there. Um, we're moving our bedroom up to that office with the bathtub. <laughs> so we can so what leave. happens to the bathtub? <laughs> Stays right there. Okay. <laughs> it's epic. I mean, I you love can't it. Get rid of it. Roll out of bed and jump in your bath and open the doors to the terrace. That's not so bad. And it's not New York City living. <laughs> it's quiet and it escapes me from the rigors of this city That's in a really so cool. gentle way. You come over. You're my neighbor. Yeah, I will. <laughs> I moved into a new apartment about two years ago and I did a full wall of wallpaper that mm. is bright. And most of my apartment is very gray and white and neutral, which mm -hmm. I like and it's calming. Mm -hmm. But I open my eyes and the first thing I see is this wallpaper and I smile Every, every morning. And it's so cool. It, those are small things that should never go unnoticed. Those are very valuable aspects of everyday life that turn mood and spirit into something that's more healing to your body if it's fighting something. I think about that often. So what other things do you do for yourself other than diet and obviously mm -hmm. creating this magical space for yourself, mm -hmm. uh, especially on the go? You know, I think it's a lot about activity. 
Um, my body often doesn't want to go out and do anything physical. However, that's how I grew up. I, I was always in sports. I love the feeling of walking after a meal. I come from a very athletic family. So psychologically, I had to kind of shift myself so I didn't just melt into the sheets, which feels way too easy with autoimmunes. So the gym kind of depresses me and it has to be an aspect of my life. But with all of the classes that are available now and having a child and seeing all the classes that are available to her physically, I thought I need to be a little bit more experimental. I need to try new things. And we get stuck so often about what works for us. And I do this at the gym and you may have been doing it for 20 years and it's not right for you anymore. So I started taking like trampoline classes or I'll take these, you know, different kinds of yoga classes. I'll start tennis um, all over the board. So it remains diverse and still exciting. I think it's also important for my daughter to see me learning new things and not being great at everything. Because as an adult, they think you're perfect at everything. So to learn something with her, like we all took tennis lessons in Los Angeles, that has such an incredible impact on my mood and spirit, my skin and my eyes. So clearly, right away, um, that I don't know why we don't look at it as just truly medicine. I know I'm in a makeup chair often for work and my makeup artist will know every single day that I have run and every single day that I have not. And the contours of my bones and the color of my skin shifts dramatically when I don't have that blood flow. I'm just a nicer person too when I do it. <laughs> I've heard this from my husband often. That's so, an interesting way to think of it. It's, wow. It's not an option. It's a necessity. And food and exercise. There's nothing revolutionary about that. But we just... We tend to think we're more powerful than all of this once we've become this age. We have great jobs. We know how to do life. We know our bodies. But the real basics, watering, feeding, and working out um, was what we try and avoid the most. We want to eat bad. We want to lay around. <laughs> but we know, all of us know that we feel better when we do these things. With autoimmune, I don't have as much of an option. So I've had to just put that in there. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, you a few months ago released the show Stay Here on mm -hmm. Netflix, which I just thought was absolutely brilliant. Thank Can you. you talk through a little bit about what the premise of that was and why you decided to do a show like that? Design shows, you know, since I started on the first one have been so formulaic and the same for 20 years, which really, really worked. And then it just became really, really predictable. And I think our country is much more advanced when it comes to interiors than they were 20 years ago. We've raised generations on this type of television. We have Pinterest. We have smartphones with access to everything in the world when it comes to design. So we went from a one to like a three very quickly. So it doesn't mean we're all making the right decision anymore. I will always have a job. <laughs> but I wanted to give a design show that had some extra muscle. And I think Airbnb and, you know, short-term rentals are such a huge part of how we travel now and into the much younger generations as well, that it's silly not to show what the real value of design is, how it truly is the host of your home before you, before your food, before what you're wearing, your home hosts everybody. And then if you turn it into a business, which we all have the power to do, some cities, sorry, it's 30 days or more. You can only do it. <laughs> but it's such an incredible option to be able to do to make money for yourself. So I wanted to really dig into all those question marks because I had them for myself because it's something I wanted to do for quite a while, not in Manhattan, but all over the world. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the design type shows, organizing type shows that are coming out these days or that have been around for a while, you sort of see the before and then the after. And it's like, Wait, but I wanted to get tips from them yes. and understand why are these bins going here and why are you choosing these colors on this small room, et cetera. And when I watched the show, I just thought it was so brilliantly done Thanks. for people to learn and then execute from there and not just go like, oh, only this guy in this house upstate can do something like this. It's really applicable to so many people. Well, and you're also giving 
you know, people a place to stay. Anyone can go see it for themselves, which is a real gift and has been an, oh, an additional. Oh, I went looked up every single one of the listings. What makes me so happy is that all of these hosts are making this incredible separate income. Some who had farm debt, some who were living in Seattle and it became so expensive they couldn't afford childcare. And all of a sudden their life has this bounty and it's designed. It's not fluff. It's the cradle that we all are looking for in home, um, but so often gets provided for in, in vacation only. So I hope there's a connection to this and home for yourself. Like you can have this every day. Mm. But I absolutely love having the examples that people can go and actually experience themselves. So it's the been, guy in Brooklyn. I mean, Gordy. Oh, my God. He is so lovable. I was melting watching that he's episode. He's single. I don't know if you are, but he's <laughs> single. And I would pair him up with anybody. Wow. He was phenomenal. <laughs> a good human being. And he's doing excellent. So a love wonderful, wonderful trip. Yeah. Just finished a new series for Bravo, so it's been a pretty arduous and exciting 2018. Okay. So what's next? We will see. A lot of product, a lot of educational stuff. I love mentoring. I love uh, doing panels. I love public speaking, which I know is our number one fear in this country, but for some reason it's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> and you're such a natural at it. I love it. And more shows. Um, I think it's time to take design to the levels that, you know, like chef's table got to. I think so often we keep it at 100 What can I do for $100 in a weekend? And there is that aspect to it, but there's thousands of layers beyond that that we haven't yet dug into. Will there be a second season of Stay Here? Uh, the jury is out. It did so well. And Netflix, as we all know, has an incredible amount of content right now. So it's figuring out what they want to do next. We should know in the next month or so. It was pretty remarkable to have... You know, I've been in television for 20 years, but to have a show launch all over the world simultaneously. So you have, you know, calls from Saudi Arabia to Norway to uh, really big in Brazil. That's been spectacular. That's so cool. And allows you also to think about more travel that you can do for yourself. There's a lot more to come. And I think a collection of Airbnbs that I designed my husband as well for ourselves all over the world for everybody is in the near future. I love that. I am in. <laughs> I will be staying there. You'll get a special pass. I appreciate that. Autoimmune people get special stays. <laughs> Free, really great bedding, lots of light. Lots of cotton bedding. Oh my God, that's Lots fantastic. of throws. And peanuts. <laughs> peanuts. All the peanut allergy people are going to be calling saying, why oh, did she yeah. say that? Oh but yeah, hey, those people. Peanuts don't upset my stomach. <laughs> So funny. Well, my dear, thank you so much for coming in and taking the short walk from your apartment to the studio <laughs> to have this conversation with me and exposing information about a topic that you haven't talked so much about publicly. It really, really means a lot that you did it here on Made Visible. I'm really glad you're doing this. So yeah. thank you. And so how can people learn more about you and connect with you and the work that you do? Quickest way is always through Instagram, Genevieve Gorder. Um, and you can go to my website as well, where all of my handles live there and everything I'm up to. Awesome. We'll be sure to include all of those links in the show notes. And thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning into Made Visible. We hope you learned about something new today. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few minutes to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your support means the world to us. Visit madevisiblestories.com to check out our writing workshops, corporate offerings, and more information that can help you in navigating life with an invisible illness. Follow Made Visible Stories on Instagram. See you next week.